Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Middle East Studies. I'm James Dorsey, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Ellen Wald about her new book, Saudi Inc., The Arabian Kingdom's Pursuit of Profit and Power. Ellen Wald, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. Perhaps we can kick off with you giving us a little bit of an intellectual biography of yourself. Sure. Um, let's see. Uh, where where do we start? Let's start. Um, I did my undergraduate degree at Princeton University, where I studied history and Near Eastern studies. I uh, I also actually studied creative writing as well, and I worked with um, Professor Mike Duran um, for my senior uh, independent work. And then I went on to graduate school at Boston University, where I also studied uh, history. I did a PhD in history. Uh, But there I actually had the opportunity to work with uh, an economist and a um, a specialist in uh, international relations or diplomatic history, uh, Andrew Basevich. And I was very, very interested in business history, really, the, the history of businesses, how, particularly how businesses interact with government, the relationship between government and business, uh, often kind of uh, launching from this in this post uh, New Deal era. What, what kind of relationships do the American government have with businesses? I was very interested, uh, for example, in the Marshall Plan. In fact, I almost wrote my dissertation about the Marshall Plan. Uh, luckily, I was dissuaded from doing that, and uh, I instead decided to look at how American and British businesses interact with the government when they are overseas. I kind of fused my interest in both uh, diplomatic history and also business history. And when um, I've always uh, been interested in in the Middle East in particular, I've studied Farsi uh, in, in particular. I've studied a little Arabic, but uh, more Farsi. And I, uh, when you're looking at businesses, particularly Western businesses in the Middle East, uh, you're really looking at oil companies. And I was looking at them in the 40s and the 50s in this post-New Deal era. And so I really focused my dissertation on American and British oil companies that were in the Middle East in the 1940s and 50s. And in particular, two companies, uh, Aramco, uh, the Arabian American oil company in Saudi Arabia, and uh, the AIOC or the Anglo-Iranian oil company, which is now BP in Iran. And so my dissertation focused on these, mostly these these two companies, uh, but also other interactions uh, in during the uh, World War II period between um, oil men and the government, and how they formed a relationship. Particularly, I, I talked about something I called mutual insurance, which was how the two 
the, the businesses and the government developed a particular relationship that served both their interests and how that relationship worked overseas, particularly in the Middle East. And that, uh, in turn, led to really the genesis of what became this book. Uh, before we get in, well, first of all, you, I guess you couldn't have chosen a more fascinating interaction between government and business than the uh, Arabian American Oil Company and the way that it evolved into becoming the Saudi National Oil Company. But before we get into the details of that, perhaps it would be interesting if you would, uh, I know this goes beyond the book, but nonetheless, whether you could draw a comparison in the way that uh, the four American oil companies that were shareholders in the Arabian uh, American Oil Company, which was the predecessor to the to Aramco, the Saudi National Oil Company, how those four companies compared in the way that they did business to uh, the British oil company in Iran. And, and that's a fantastic question because that was so, so important in also in um, in how the relationship between the Americans and the Saudis developed as opposed to how the relationship between the British and the Iranians developed. And there, there were a lot of, of other differences. The British had been there much earlier, but really the Americans who went into Saudi Arabia were very conscious. Um, those four American oil companies uh, were talking about Standard Oil of New Jersey and Standard Oil of New York, Standard Oil of California, and Texaco. A Standard Oil of New Jersey became Exxon, Standard Oil of New York became Mobil, and now they're one company, ExxonMobil, and Standard Oil of California is, became a um, Chevron. So those those four oil companies formed this subsidiary called Aramco, the Arabian American Oil Company, which was a separate uh, company, but it was those were the four shareholders uh, until the Saudis began to to buy it out, but they were very very conscious of what was going on in Iran, and in fact, they were they they were trying desperately not to do what the British did to Iran. And in fact, the State Department was often in communication with them, and they were looking at what was happening in Iran and saying to these these um, men who were in Saudi Arabia dealing with the Saudis, saying, um, are you seeing any signs of the Saudis reacting to you the way the Iranians are reacting to the British? Because if you are, we're going to be in trouble because it's not that the American government or the American people needed that oil in the 50s when all of the problems were happening in Iran, but they needed that oil to go to Western Europe to fuel the rebuilding from the war. And they needed that oil because they were using it to fuel their military planes in Korea and in Japan. So it wasn't so much, you know, the American public gasoline prices are going to go up, but it was definitely seen as a strategic imperative to have that Saudi oil. And they were very, very concerned and were often kind of pushing the Americans in some ways to be much more accommodating of the Saudis precisely because of what they saw, because the British were so antagonistic towards the Iranians. They were so intransigent. They refused to consider uh, what the Iranians were asking for. The Iranians were originally just asking for more. Um, they were asking for, for a, a larger cut of the profits from their oil. And the guy who was in charge of the Anglo-Iranian oil company at the time, uh, William Fraser was very intransigent and he was really very opposed to negotiating and he just put his foot down 
And the Iranians reacted by nationalizing the oil company. And by the time Fraser and the British were willing to talk, the Iranians were so far gone that they were not going to going to talk. They wanted nothing short of nationalization. And the Americans were very conscious of this and were constantly saying to uh, the American oil men, you know, are there signs of this? You need to be careful. Obviously, the uh, historical trajectories, uh, comparing the historical trajectories of Saudi Arabia and Iran is comparing apples and pears. Uh, but <laughs> but one uh, one other difference, I think, or maybe because of that, of course, one other difference is, is that the role of the original oil company, so the uh, American uh, uh, American Arabian oil company in Saudi Arabia and the Anglo-Iranian uh, oil company in Iran, uh, and the role that they played in the formation of the state and the development of the state are very different. In many ways, Aramco probably was far more central to the involvement of, the, of Saudi Arabia as a state than the Anglo-British oil company was to Iran. Oh, precisely. And, and you know, there was really no other industry in Saudi Arabia at the time. And, you know, they, they had nothing. The only other source of profit or of, of revenue, really, the only other source of revenue for the um, Anglo, uh, sorry, the only other source of revenue for the Saudis was Hajj. And that really wasn't bringing them very much um, in terms of revenue, in terms of taxes. And they were living essentially a pre-modern life in Saudi Arabia. They had very, very little before the oil industry. And Iran, by contrast, was a vibrant, you know, economy that had a lot going for it outside of the oil industry. Yes, the oil industry employed a lot more Iranians and was a very large percentage of their economy. I don't have the the figures in front of me, but it was a very large percentage. But they had all sorts of other things going for them. And they also had a much more developed government. They had majlis, you know, they they had a parliament. Um, The Saudis were really just a monarchy. I mean, we're talking about an old style monarchy with uh, almost no bureaucracy uh, as well. I I guess the what if question was, how would Saudi Arabia would have developed if Ramco hadn't been there? <laughs> they really would not have had any way to um, to modernize. Essentially, they they had no industry. They had no no way to modernize. And the Saudi king, I mean, they knew it. That's the important thing: is that the Saudis knew that they needed Aramco. And and they knew once they realized that they had this oil, they knew they had the oil, but they knew that they didn't have the expertise to develop it. It's like, like I always say, oil is worth nothing until you, unless you can process it and get it to someone who can put it in their car. Otherwise it's just black gook that can light on fire. And it seemed that the Saudis were cognizant of the fact that although they were sitting on this pile of black gold and they called it God's gift, but they had they lacked the expertise to develop it. And so they knew they needed the Americans. Likewise, the Americans, the, the oil men, knew that they needed the Saudis because without that access, because ultimately when it came down to it, the Saudis controlled access to their oil. They were you know, the sovereigns of, of the country. And so no matter what kind of disagreements they were having, it all boiled down to that fact and that they needed each other to work 
with each other. Now, over time, and the Saudis did put a lot of effort into into gaining the expertise that they needed to run this oil company. And so once that expertise was developed, that's when they began to actually buy out the company. And the Saudis learned from Iran too. It's very interesting because both the Americans were learning from the were learning from the Iranian situation, but the Saudis saw what happened to the Iranian government when they nationalized their oil company, but they weren't ready to run it. And they ended up having this um, terrible embargo on them. They lost a ton of money. And for this, for the Iranians, the, the nationalization and the ownership was much more important to them because they had had this history of Western powers coming in and taking control of their resources. They had it in the early 1900s with the tobacco protests. So they had this, this experience with colonialism and imperialism that the Saudis didn't really have. And so the Saudis didn't necessarily see the Americans in the same way as the Iranians saw the British. So they didn't necessarily feel that they needed to nationalize for their own, um, you know, for, for their own sake. They were much more interested in just making money. And they knew that if they took the oil company from the Americans and they did it in a violent way or they did it too soon, they would lose money. And they always were keeping their eye on profit. That was their main goal. The, the Saudis also being all about regime survival, and that was probably what you were referring to, were also looking at after the nationalization of the oil company Iran at the U.S.-British-backed 1953 coup in Iran. They were. I think that they, in many senses, kind of saw it as like a kind of, well, what did they expect was going to happen? Uh, they they always kind of had this, at least in the documents that, that I uh, was reading, had this almost like bemused uh, way of looking at it, like, well, what, what did they think was going to happen? Um, and, and so they were always um, definitely making it, they, they, there were times when they threatened nationalization because they knew the effect it would have on the Americans, but not because they really believed that they could actually run the oil industry. I mean, we're talking about 1952, 1953. And so there were Saudis who were working for the oil company, but not in any, um, you know, positions of, of executive uh, positions. Uh, you mentioned early on that the uh, U.S. government, the State Department particularly, was uh, very conscious of what was happening in Iran and concerned to some degree that the same could happen in Saudi Arabia and therefore advising the, uh, the American oilmen to be accommodating. Yet, at least for a fair, fairly significant period of time, the attitude, as you, as I interpret your, uh, what you've been, the history that you wrote, uh, the attitude of the oil men was one of condescending of the Saudis, underestimating the Saudis, and even being deceitful in the way that they were doing business. Constantly, I mean, they they didn't want to end up in an intractable position with nationalization like the Iranians, but they did. The Americans did not see these people, did not see the Saudis as equals in any way, shape, or form, and they were definitely trying to to deceive them. They didn't think that they, um, you know, knew as much, and that the, and they didn't think that they knew what was good for them. 
Uh, they definitely had very, I would say, typical, um, you know, Western Western um, attitudes towards uh, towards Saudis, um, particularly the the executives. Uh, later on, and a lot of the Americans, uh, maybe like. Americans who worked um, for the company in the 60s and in, uh, and in the 70s. So uh, we're talking about that 60s and 70s. These were Americans who were working with Saudis who also worked for the company who were climbing the ranks were had had very different opinions of of the Saudi. So so I don't want I don't want to sit, make it sound like this is a blanket statement that we're, I'm talking more about the um, executives or the the diplomats in a sense. But those who were who were working, I've, I've sp- spoken to many people who said, you know, I worked with this, you know, Saudi guy. He was a great boss, uh, you know, because at first, you know, because eventually the, the Saudis, you know, rose to the ranks and, and became executives in, in the company. So those who, who were working for the company, I think they had, for the most part, very good relations. Part of that is due to the fact that Aramco was run essentially like an American company. And so I've had, you know, I've, I've spoken to, to Saudis who told me, you know, oh, they made us all, we thought there were some tension between the Saudis and the Americans. So they made us all go on this um, retreat, this like business peeps treat. And we had to like talk about our feelings and, uh, you know, the kind of thing that they'll, they'll send you off to, or they'll send, you know, the, the executives uh, off to it in, in corporations. And it's like, it was just like, you know, what they would do at Exxon if, if there were, you know, with, with management. So, so there, there's definitely that. But in the early days, the Americans definitely thought they could uh, pull one over on the Saudis. And there's this very interesting um, uh, uh, incident that happened in the 50s. They had renegotiated their concession agreement um, to essentially move away from the typical uh, just royalties to what they called a 50-50, um, a 50-50 profit sharing, where they worked out by way of several different kinds of taxes uh, that essentially the Saudis and the Americans would, uh, the, Sa- the Saudi government and the oil company would split the profits 50-50. Uh, but then uh, the very kind of crafty and um, I would say shrewd finance minister was looking at exactly how much money the Aramco was selling the oil from at four at different points to because Aramco would sell all of its oil to its the four uh, shareholding companies, and he was looking at these discrepancies between what Aramco was selling their oil for and what these companies were were paying, and, and then what they were selling it for. And uh, he he thought that that the Saudis were being cheated in this uh, transaction. So he actually went and he brought in an American consulting uh, company called. Um, uh, De Gaulier and McNaughton. Uh, De Gaulier and McNaughton is actually still around today. In fact, they were the company that was hired by Saudi Aramco to audit their reserves uh, in preparation for their IPO. So uh, they're a very old, well-known company, and the Saudi government hired them to, um, you know, to to come and sit in and be on the negotiations. And so when um, when the Americans got to the negotiating table, they're stunned to see these Americans that a lot of them know and have worked with. Uh, sitting on the side of these uh, Saudi bureaucrats arguing against them. And yet they were very successful. And the Americans had to admit that, yes, they were kind of cheating the Saudis. And they had to, uh, they ended up reaching uh, a more equitable agreement. 
I don't know if this is true, but I walked away from 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 reading certainly the the early history uh, with a notion as if the Saudis really from early on had a long term strategy uh, in terms of building up the cult company, building up uh, uh, Saudi capabilities and 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 and, and Saudi developing Saudi nationals who would ultimately be able to take over the company, uh, a long-term strategy in terms of um, uh, participation, uh, one in term, uh, uh, with related to, uh, uh, to the royalties and the revenues that they would be reaping, but then also in terms of gradually building up the ownership and before finally then acquiring the company. Is that a correct impression? That's exactly what I wanted to show in the book because I think that um, there was a long-term plan. And a lot of that had to do, like you mentioned before, with preservation of the monarchy because pretty early on, they realized that this was their ticket, that this oil was their ticket. But it wasn't just the oil because, like I said, they saw what happened in Iran and how Iran had all this oil. But if they couldn't get it out of out of the ground and they couldn't get it out of the country, they weren't going to make any money from it. And so there was a definitely the, – the Saudi monarchy has always, or at least maybe until recently, looked at their survival in the long term. Everything they do is for like – the next generation or to generations to come. It's not necessarily, they're not looking at, um, say, their next quarterly report, like a lot of, of companies, you know, are looking to just, you know, are our quarterly results next month better than this month? So, but the Saudis are looking in the long term. And it started with the monarchy looking in the long term saying, you know, King Abdulaziz Ibn Saud saying he's finally got this. He struggled and struggled for so many years. He's finally got this essentially like a windfall. And yet, you know, this is not really for him. It's for his children or his children's children, for his sons. And his sons were the ones who ruled Saudi Arabia. The The monarchy is passed from brother to brother to brother, not uh, eldest son to eldest son. And so they saw this as a very important way, their legacy for future generations. And so there was always this but that this idea that, well, maybe we could make a lot more money right away if we did X, but we can make a lot, a lot more money in the long term if we stick it out, if we send our kids to school and they become geologists and petroleum engineers and we have them work for this company and, you know, then they will take over. Eventually we will buy out the company. And, not all of that was conceived, obviously, by, you know, Abdulaziz Ibn Saud. I don't think he, he foresaw that at all. But there were people working for him who did. Um, Suleiman, uh, who was the um, – he was the, the finance minister, Abdullah Suleiman. Sorry, Suleiman's his last name. Abdullah Suleiman, who was uh, the finance minister, definitely had an idea that that was something that could be done. Uh, and he was the first one to ask for Saudi board membership. He wanted Saudis to be on the board of Aramco. And he didn't end up getting it 
but his successors did end up getting uh, Saudi uh, board membership. And they kind of built on that, learned how things worked. And then eventually when the time came and they made a lot of money, they used it then to just buy out the company. And by the time they'd gotten to that point in the late, you know, in the early 70s, it was pretty clear that the American owners were seeing the writing on the wall, that they realized that at a certain point, they were either going to be nationalized, or but they could get more out of it if they sold. And so instead, they had a, what everyone described to me as a very amicable buyout takeover. The details of which, unfortunately, are not all public, um, mostly because it, the, Aramco was a private company. It was registered in, in Delaware, but it was technically a private company. So uh, we don't know all the details. I actually uh, had the opportunity to talk to the C, the American CEO at the time of the final um, buyout agreement. and He's very, very old. And I asked him, I said, so how much did they pay you finally? Like, how much was the company worth back then? And he wouldn't tell me. So there are some details that we don't really know about it, but there was always definitely this long-term plan to buy out the company in the end. And because of the way that they did that and because they went slowly and they were able to kind of hold back and be patient, they were able to make a lot more money because the process of the buyout was so undisruptive. Everyone said, we, we had no idea that you know, one day we were working for an American company and then the next day we were working for a Saudi company, but we had no idea. But if I recall correctly, you use a figure of $2 billion in 1970s terms as a, value, as a valuation of the company. That was um, something that was reported, I believe, by Mies at the time, but it was unconfirmed. The economic survey. Yeah. And it was, it was unconfirmed. So, um, you know, that's, that's what they think that they uh, may have paid for it, but we don't have the um, – we do know that there was also a deal by which the um, four shareholders, American shareholders, were still able to buy uh, oil from – they were guaranteed, I think, certain prices and certain amounts of oil from the Saudis for a certain amount of time uh, because that, that was a particular point for those companies uh, to have access to that oil. One one other ex- possible explanation of uh, the differences in the Saudi approach and the Iranian approach is, of course, the fact that the Saudis, being concerned about regime survival, were always more dependent on external forces than the Iranians were. Well, exactly. I mean, the Saudis did not really have an army, so to speak of. Um, you know, they had enough... You know, they, they had kind of their internal forces and, and Abdul Aziz would, you know, send out some of his sons to put down rebellions occasionally. But they had no, um, you know, no real army to speak of if there was a regional conflict. And that really came out uh, in the Gulf War where uh, they really had to invite the Americans in to defend them. And in particular, their oil industries were really on the line there. Uh, It was not far away. And uh, the oil, the uh, Aramco, which was then uh, owned by the Saudis, 
essentially provided a lot or most of the oil and the jet fuel that the Americans were using uh, and that the other allies were using to bomb uh, Iraq when they were they were leaving from Saudi Arabia and they were they were using their oil. If I can interrupt, you're referring to the 1991 Iraq war when the, the Iraqis invaded Kuwait. Yes, yes, in in 1990-1991. Yes. Um, yes, I'm referring to that war. So they, Aramco actually provided all of the oil uh, and, and jet fuel for the um, for the bombings. Um, this you don't refer to this in the book, but I want to throw at you any, at you anyways. Uh, Tim Niblock, the political economist in Britain, who uh, has done a lot of work on, on on political economy in the in the Gulf, he at one point argued that the Saudis. Were, had essentially uh, adopted the Taiwan model in the development of their oil as well as their uh, petrochemicals industry in terms of having uh, a bureaucracy that was independent of the oil company, which may, was, may not have been quite the case in terms of Aramco. But it's certainly uh, not corrupt and much more attuned to uh, the needs of the business as opposed to other sectors of the economy. So that's a really interesting point. I'm, I'm not hugely familiar with uh, his work, but um, he's definitely uh, definitely onto something there because um, Aramco is unique amongst, I would say, all Gulf oil companies and, and other national oil companies as well in that it operates independently from the Saudi government. And, and I don't mean totally independently. I mean, the, the, you know, there's still influence. There's an oil ministry and, and the oil ministry is, is the ministry that really deals with uh, setting production quotas. It's, uh, you know, deals with OPEC and things like that. But what I mean is that in other countries like Iran, at the NIOC or Kuwait with the Kuwait Oil Company, the government runs the oil company. So, like you said, like their bureaucrats are the ones who are running the oil company. And when you, when the NIOC, for example, the National Iranian Oil Company sells oil, that money all goes through the Iranian central bank. And this is actually a huge problem with the, with the sanctions right now is, is that they control all of the money. And so the money goes to the government and then the government decides how much money the oil company is going to get. And that's t- not the case at all with Aramco because Aramco operates independently. Aramco sells its oil. Aramco collects the money. The money goes to Aramco. And then Aramco pays taxes and you know royalties and things like that to the government. But they pay it in taxes. And this was a, a, a very important point. And actually, when I was, um, I was in Saudi Arabia and I went to uh, Aramco and I had the opportunity to sit down with Ali Al-Naimi, who was uh, he was the first Saudi CEO of Aramco, and then uh, he was also oil minister for many years. And I had the opportunity to ask him about this because uh, he had written an autobiography, but it was a little hazy on this point of, you know, what exactly happened. And there was this transition period in the 1980s where 
Aramco was actually owned by the Saudis, but it was still registered in Delaware. It was still an American company. And then in 1988, they formally transferred it to Saudi Arabia. And so Ali Al-Nami said that during that time, the finance ministry actually fought very hard to kind of get Aramco under their jurisdiction. And Naimi went and he went to the king and he said, we can't have this. You cannot have an oil company that is where the money doesn't come to them and they don't get to make decisions about their budget because we'll never be able to expand. We won't be able to do what's best for the kingdom. And um, um, Ali Al-Naimi had a very particular vision for what Aramco could become that was far beyond what the American shareholders had thought. And I think that he understood that if the money was going to the government, in particular the finance ministry, that they were just going to take it and use it for what they wanted. And they weren't going to be able to put it into and into invest into capital expenditures the way that he wanted. He said, I think he said, he said, you can't have an oil company that that doesn't control have control of its money and that was really the key difference i think between aramco and between uh, other other oil national oil companies is that they are so independent or or they had been for many many years in fact uh, if you want to talk about controversy i've actually written about this but i i see some changes happening now as the Saudi leadership is moving to the next generation that are really trying to take the decision-making away from Aramco. And uh, in my mind, at least, and and I think that I, I show in the book that in many respects, it was that independence and the ability to pursue this vision uh, to for to maximize long-term profit um, that has really made Aramco so successful and by virtue of Aramco's success has not just made Saudi Arabia a success, but really made the Saudi monarchy a success and, and really kept them in power. Yeah, I want to I come back to uh, what you just re- uh, referred to in terms of Aramco today and, and, and its whole place in what's happening in Saudi Arabia. And, and the and the reforms. But before we do that, um, one of the other themes that I think comes out in your book very strongly is, in a sense, political expediency, with other words, that the Saudis consistently almost uh, uh, strictly kept a, a Chinese wall between their oil industry and the politics of the region. So in 1940. So in 1948, when Israel was uh, was was founded, the <clears throat> Saudis did not react in terms of using their oil leverage. And by the same token, 1973, even though it was projected as an embargo against the United States and the Netherlands because of the 1973 war and U.S. support for Israel, in effect, it really was part of the strategy. Uh, or, or an opportunity that arose uh, in in the whole Saudi strategy to take over Aramco. Uh, exactly. I mean, that's that's exactly right. It, for the Saudis, it's always been much more about money than it has been about politics, uh, in particular the uh, you know incredible politics of, of the Middle East. And for the Saudis, oh. For for the Saudis, it's it's always been more about money 
than it has been about politics. I don't want to say that that politics has never come into play, and it certainly has, but they're never going to do something to actively hurt their chances of making money just for a political reason or an ideological reason. So, you know, uh, if like uh, even now, if the Americans are saying, oh, we want to put pressure on Iran, so we need to keep oil prices low. So can you produce more oil? The Saudis, you know, are aligned in terms of their political interests there. But if there's not money to be made with producing more oil and selling it, then they're probably not going to do it. They're not going to just do it for the sake of politics. They'll do it for money and politics, or they'll do it for money. And, and and that's something that I think has really been lost or subsumed in when we're looking at narratives of the Middle East, because uh, we're so focused on ideology. And um, that ideology was a huge motivator in, in 1973, when it came to Iran, when it came to Egypt, when it came to, to Libya. But for the Saudis, it was something that turned out to be convenient for them. And it was something they they couldn't really get out of because they did have these alliances with these other countries, but it was something that helped their overall scheme in terms of business. And so that, and I wanted to bring that business aspect back to say, this is what's really motivating them. And this is a consistent theme throughout. One could argue that uh, manipulating, balancing the oil price, being the swing producer, was as much uh, political as it was commercial, because Saudi Arabia, also in terms of regime survival, uh, certainly had an interest in being a, uh, uh, a key ally to Western powers and and in terms of its utility, it was that ability to to influence the the, <clears throat> the oil price or to influence um, the amount of oil available. I would say that definitely helped, but I think when we talk about Saudi Arabia as a swing producer, we have to be careful because they very much during the eighties they tried very hard to be a swing producer, and I think they they found that you can really only be a swing producer in certain cases, and there were times where they kept trying to basically swing lower, so Saudi would cut their oil production when the rest of OPEC wasn't necessarily cutting in an attempt to push up oil prices. And in that case, they were just not able to do it. I mean, it was it was not, there were years where it was very difficult for them. They were losing a lot of money. They were trying to be this swing producer, but there were all other sources of oil. There was oil coming out of the North Sea. There was oil coming out of Alaska and all these other OPEC producers you know, in the in the Gulf and, and in Venezuela, were were producing a lot themselves, and the Saudis really ended up losing out trying to play swing producer when it really wasn't possible. So they're able to swing in certain situations when it can help them, and it can definitely help them politically with without a doubt. But there are other situations where it's just not possible because even though they have incredible productive capacity, they have incredible reserves. They, you know, they have the best, I would say, the best oil company in the world. They have the the most 
accessible and cheap to produce oil in the world. But when there are a lot of other sources of oil out there, you just they just can't necessarily control the market. Right. Well, I mean, you know, in writing the history of, of Aramco, you're in a lot of ways writing the history of Saudi Arabia. Uh, and maybe you can talk a little bit about, on the one hand, you describe certainly in the earlier days a much more lib- a conservative but still much more liberal society than the way we perceive Saudi Arabia today. Uh, among other things, you mentioned that the banning of alcohol really came out of an incident in a bar rather than out of uh, out of uh, <clears throat> a religious conviction I think the one the one the one uh, place where I would take issue with uh, with what you wrote was uh, that was in terms of uh, Saudi funding of what I would call ultra conservative Islam globally. I th- you know, the relationship with the Muslim Brotherhood, in my mind, which you lumped together with Al-Qaeda and others, I think was much more complex uh, on the one hand. And on the other hand, if you really look at the Saudi funding, the overwhelming bulk of it did not go to violent groups. But there are about five countries where it deliberately went to violent groups even to until today and so i thought that you were that that yeah, I, again I, I realized it was only a couple of pages but nonetheless oh i i agree with you uh, there's definitely a bit of kind of uh, glossing over of that particular aspect precisely because you know the book was not an exploration of of that topic, which in and of itself, you know, could be many books. So uh, I, I absolutely agree. Um, I think the the overall point I was I was trying to make was that at least at this point, they they absolutely have funded these groups, but over time, I think they came to realize that um, political Islam poses a great threat to their own monarchy. And they realize that these people are trying to overthrow them. And so they are now taking these things much more seriously. Uh, and and really, you know, they do have absolute authority. And uh, at least in Saudi Arabia, are shutting down anything that they perceive as an Islamic-based threat to their, their power. Because... Uh, you know the the type of political Islam that the Muslim Brotherhood want to see, or or other radical groups want to see, is not the Saudi monarchy. Uh, and and they realized. I think it took them a, quite a while, but eventually they came to see these groups as threatening to them. I I want to go uh, if we can for a moment beyond the book, and you referenced that before, and that's uh, Aramco's obviously been in the news in the last uh, two years because of Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman's reform programs and the way that he made uh, a a privatization of a small uh, part of Aramco um, almost a cornerstone of his reform plans. Um, And maybe you can talk a little bit about that in terms of how important Aramco is to the economic reforms, what the delay 
in the planned uh, sale of a 5% stake means uh, for, for the reform plans. Sure. So I, I'm probably going to give a different uh, take on this from other analysts. And uh, my, my take is really that the crown prince came out there, and this was before he was crown prince, and he really talked about the sale of uh, a portion of Aramco as a cornerstone of his private of his economic diversification uh, and economic transformation plan. And he he put it out there like that. But when you look at what they're trying to do and what the Saudi economy really needs, the uh, Aramco sale is really not a particularly integral role in what is actually or what will actually help to wean the kingdom off of their addiction to oil. Uh, Aramco is, you know, a money-making machine for the Saudis. And uh, it's also kind of a, a cornerstone in terms of the development of other industries in Saudi Arabia, particularly the petrochemicals industry, but they also uh, do uh, what they can to attract uh, other uh, manufacturing. I know they they try to uh, attract manufacturers that use their products to come and manufacture in Saudi Arabia. But what's really that Saudi Arabia has has problems. I mean, every country has problems, but Saudi Arabia's got problems. And one of the, some of the the problems in particular are that its economy is very and its employment are very much reliant on the state. Uh, most people are employed by the state, and its uh, businesses are very much dependent on the state uh, businesses that are not Aramco. Uh, and so, this is a huge problem for uh, you know for the Saudi economy. They need private businesses. They need to either attract foreign businesses to come to Saudi Arabia and set up shop there. And I know they were trying to. They were trying to get um, tech companies to come and build data centers there. They want to be a center for logistics. They want to, uh, you know, they want to build uh, Kalishnikovs in the in Saudi Arabia. They, they want to do this. But part of the issue is that the state is such a huge presence that they're crowding out other private investment. And so the Aramco sale was supposed to generate money for the Saudi Public Investment Fund, which they wanted to use to then invest in non-oil things, tech things, real estate, you know, all sorts of things. That's not what's supposed to help the Saudi budget. And that's not what's supposed to help the Saudi economy necessarily. That's supposed to generate revenue in the long term like uh, any other sovereign wealth fund. What's really going to help the Saudi economy is if they actually start privatizing things. Like they actually he, – he originally saw himself. He said, I'm like a Saudi Thatcher. I want to sell off these state-owned companies. So far, really, the only sale that they're talking about now is the state-owned portion of Sabic, which is a Saudi petrochemical company that they want to sell to Aramco which is seems to be what they want to do to raise about seven, $70 billion for their public investment fund to then use to make investments in God knows what they want to invest in now. They invest in all sorts of, I would say, fairly risky tech investments like an augmented reality company or Uber or they're very into the SoftBank fund. So I don't see that as really driving the economy. Uh, I see other changes that they have said they're going to make, like making it easier to start a business, allowing foreigners to open businesses, reducing the time it takes to get a business license. Um, They have a 
uh, segment of their uh, government that is supposed to is basically a stimulus plan where they're supposed to be awarding like stimulus money to either foreign companies who want to mm-hmm. come in and build things and and set up shop. So so my take is really that it looks bad for Mohammed bin Salman to walk back something that he said was such a centerpiece. And politically, that could become a problem for him. But when it comes to what's actually going on on the ground, if they can actually do what their Vision 2030 plan said it was going to do, even without the Aramco sale, they'll be in much better shape. The question is, are they actually privatizing things? Are they actually helping Saudi start businesses? I mean, they've had this new rule that says, um, you know, a Saudiization of the workforce. Well, fine. So they're kicking out their foreign workers, but are Saudis actually being hired for these jobs? And the data on that is not so clear. So the, the failure to list Aramco on the New York Stock Exchange may not really have anything to do with the success or failure of Vision 2030. No, I, I would agree with that. Uh, you talked earlier about Crown <clears throat> uh, Prince uh, bin Salman in some ways trying to gain far greater political control of, uh, uh, control of Aramco by the state in ways that Aramco up until then or up until now, has been able to fend off, is, you know that that meshing of politics and and business, if you wish. Um, you mentioned SoftBank. Uh, you look at SoftBank's um, offer to the world soccer body FIFA of twenty five billion dollars. That is purely a political move rather than a commercial move. So you see that on on a number of fronts. And I think it's it's very difficult. Actually, I I wrote an op-ed about this uh, that was in in the New York Times a couple months ago. There's some very, very, I think, disturbing signs. I mean, I think all all around, you know, Mohammed bin Salman really wants to portray himself as this great reformer. And he uses things like his, uh, you know, decision to allow women to have driver's licenses. But then along with these reforms is an incredible crackdown on civil society in Saudi Arabia, Mm -hmm. arrests of women who worked for years to try to, you know, achieve this this goal. Um, other women's rights activists just, just arrested and, and charged with treason and, and nothing else. I mean, those are the hallmarks not of someone who is interested in reform, but someone who is interested in power consolidation. And you can see it with Aramco as well. Um, and traditionally, you know, the, the relationship was always, I think, was was not really well defined. And they, they have structures. And, and I asked when I was there, you know, how how does the government and, and Aramco, work, how, how do they work together? Uh, what's, what's their relationship? And it was explained that Aramco has a board of directors, and they their job is to, you know, approve uh, Aramco's, you know, annual plans and, and whatnot. And then above them is something called the Supreme Aramco Council that is made up of um, ministers and um, the, the king and the crown prince and other, uh, you know, uh, important people and whatnot. And then they approve that and so on and so forth. And uh, but really, I think the relationship could be summed up in, in this way. 
And Ala al-Naimi was the CEO of Aramco. He was called in by uh, King Fahd at that time. So he uh, went to see him and he thought that King Fahd was going to talk to him about some issues uh, regarding mosque accessibility on Aramco's facility. So at headquarters, at other areas, they, they had enough mosques and he had prepared all this information about accessibility of mosques and, and all of this. And he gets there and, you know, everything happens at a different time when you get to, to the to the royal palace and he waits and he waits it's finally you know like three o'clock in the morning and then the king brings him in and he doesn't want to talk about mosques he wants to know like how are things going and Ali al-Naimi said something like don't worry I'm running your oil company it's this kind of this this idea that that yes it's maybe owned by the king or owned by the government but the care of of the oil is is given to the technocrats is given to the Aramcons, as, as they they call themselves, and it was always this this independent uh, group, and they could make decisions about how they wanted to spend their money, what they wanted to build, and and sometimes big things did need to get approval, but it was always kind of a, a rubber stamp deal, and that seems to be changing because the crown prince wants uh, is making really unprecedented input into what the company is doing, how it's spending its money. And, um, and that just seems to, there seems to be changes in this relationship. And I would argue that may not be the best thing for the survival of the Saudi monarchy because Aramco has been their cash cow. And yes, they're changing their economy, but that's not going to happen overnight. And you don't want to cut off the hand that feeds you. You, um, I mean, given the, um, indefinite delay of the initial public offering of Aramco. And uh, you mentioned the um, the sale of the petrochemicals company Sabic to Aramco as a way of raising funds. Uh, do you see a private equity sale as a possibility, for example, to the Chinese, either because, uh, either because it's a way of raising funds, but also it's a way of locking in China? in a sense, in terms of uh, long-term supply. I think that was an idea that was floated probably by the Ministry of Finance. I think it's, I don't see it as really a particularly necessary way of locking in China because Aramco has already locked in China. They co-own refineries and petrochemical stuff all over China and they have long-term contracts for their oil. So China is is very much entwined with Aramco and uh, you know those potentials can grow in term in, in terms of the business and and are growing. So I'm not sure that they uh, they really need to lock in Aramco. Saudi Arabia has always sent a consistent amount of oil to China and even though, you know, in terms of, of the amount of oil Saudi Arabia sends there, and Saudi Arabia and Russia have always been China's top suppliers. And sometimes Russia has sent more, sometimes Saudi sent more, but Saudi Arabia has this consistent baseline because of their long-term contracts to these uh, refineries. So I don't see that going anywhere all that all that soon. I think that they have realized that the private equity sale is not going to necessarily gain them as much as they want. And for the Chinese, there's really not much in it for them. I I don't think it's attractive. I don't think the Chinese would see it as attractive because 
there's no way that they're going to let the Chinese in on any sort of sensitive data or sensitive information about the company, which is really what is or can be seen as, as very valuable. So the Chinese are really, other than, than making an investment, which could, you know, appreciate, there isn't a whole lot in, that's in it for China, I, I would say. Ellen, we could uh, go on for another hour, <laughs> but unfortunately, we don't have the time. Uh, but before I let you go, what is your next uh, project? Sure. So I've, I've got a couple things uh, in the fire right now. I'm uh, working on um, kind of an, an ebook that provides a very updated look at the company for uh, for investors, really. This was uh, um, Saudi Inc. is really, it's a history book that's designed, you know, for anyone to read. It's a good story. Uh, but I'm working on, on a slightly more technical look at the company uh, as it is uh, as it is in, in modern times that uh, would be available just as an ebook. And uh, my next uh, his, history book I am, um, I'm not, it's not under contract, but I am um, working on a look at, uh, right now I I call it in my head, how to be a dictator. So I'm looking at, uh, you know, qualities of uh, authoritarian rule over uh, history, and in particular with an eye towards where we uh, see this today and how we can kind of understand uh, what guiding principles are used uh, for authoritarian rulers to both take power and then maintain it and uh, how that works, uh, particularly in uh, in the modern times. Well, that's certainly something I'd love to come back and do another show with you once the book is out. Thank you very much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. All the best. Thanks for having me. 